Hey, this is Tanner Sherlock. I'm the pastor at Shadow State Chi Alpha. And this is our podcast where our mission is to make disciples who then make disciples. Be sure and subscribe so you can get our content every time we post. And I pray that this message blesses you today. God bless. All right, so we are going to finish up our sermon on Philippians. And I wrote this sermon. Uh, we literally arrived home. You can go to the next slide. We arrived home um, at uh, 2 o'clock. And so I wrote this sermon as after we got home and kind of on the way home. Um, so I apologize. I'm going to be reading from my notes a lot. But I really love the content of this. And I really feel like the Holy Spirit spoke to me on behalf of this. And so Philippians 4 is also my favorite book of the Bible, or favorite chapter of the Bible. Philippians is my favorite book. Philippians 4 is my favorite chapter. And so this book and this chapter really, in my mind, embody us as Christians and how we should act and how we should um, think. And it, it really kind of helps us, in my mind, Philippians 4 really helps us understand Philippians 1 through 3. Philippians 1 through 3, Paul lets out a lot of commands and he lets out a lot of you should do this and continue doing this and whatever. But I feel like in Philippians 4, he really wraps it up and gives us kind of the the how-to and the why. And so for everything that came prior to this, the previous six sermons that I've preached on Philippians, um, Philippians 4 really kind of is the, the, the... the knockout punch of Philippians. It's such a good chapter. So if you guys want to turn there, um, we're going to be reading through Philippians 1 through 13 tonight. Um, otherwise, it will be on the board. And so, um, so my question for you guys, so I want to ask you this. Before we get started, um, just to kind of, I don't know, get yourself out of your comfort zone a little bit, kind of close, close your eyes and just think for a second. So close your eyes and think. And, and Dream up for a second. I want to ask you this. I know you've done this before because we've all done this. But what would you do if you won the lottery? Would you buy that house? Uh, Would you buy that car that you've dreamed of? Would you maybe think practically and hire a lawyer and an investor and begin investing it rather than spending it? Would you... What would you do if you won a billion dollars? You guys can open your eyes. I know that this is something that we've all thought about. We've all planned out in our brains. We've always kind of gone through it. But tonight I want to go through some unknown facts about the lottery. So did you know that 70% of all lottery winners have ended up bankrupt? 70%. It is estimated, because I don't think they can figure out exactly this number, but over 90% of lottery winners actually regret regret winning the lottery. That means 9 out of 10 people who have ever won the lottery wished they had never won the lottery in the first place. And the reasons are listed as follows. The first one is, the first thing that happens when you win the lottery is, even if you keep it quiet and you're not in the news, You tell one person and that one person tells one person and eventually everybody in your close acquaintance knows you won the lottery and everybody begins asking you for money so much that it becomes clear that they care more about your money than you. And so it becomes hard for you to think and and trust people because you don't know if they're coming at you because they just want your money or if they're coming at you because they actually love you and they care about you. They pretend to be your friends. They talk to you like they're your friends, but in reality, they just want your money. A lot of times your family, people that you think are close to you begin telling you lies in order to get money from you. If you tell them no, they begin coming up with sob stories, even though those sob stories are completely false and fabricated in order to try to get you to donate money to them. The second thing is you become a target from both theft to outright murder. There is dozens and dozens of lottery winners who have died in mysterious ways and they have absolutely no clue who killed them from cyanide poisoning to just straight up getting shot and their money being taken. So you become a target. So then you become paranoid. Number three, kind of like number one, 
almost all of your relationships begin strained, especially your closest relationships, because now there's the factor of money involved. And then on top of that, even the people that you're the closest to, there begins to become a rift because you're wealthier than they are. And you're so wealthy that they feel uncomfortable around you because they become jealous of what you have or what they don't have. And they almost begin to think that they're entitled to what you have because you're so close to each other. And then the fourth thing is that the lottery winners struggle with suicide at an astronomical rate because they both get bored and they try to analyze all of their issues that they have and then that makes them depressed. So the first three reasons also combined with boredom causes them to become depressed. And so I want to present you guys with two scenarios, okay? So think very critically about this. Scenario one, your life is exactly the same as it is for the rest of your life. So as you are in this state right now, it's the rest of your life. You're in college for the rest of your life. You have homework for the rest of your life. You live exactly where you live for the rest of your life. Your job you have, you have that for the rest of your life for the next six years, seven years. Literally everything about your life, life stays exactly the way it is right now for the next 60 or 70 years. Scenario two is overnight you become worth millions. You have enough money that you don't have to have a job. You can hire somebody to work for you, to, to cook your meals, to clean for you. You don't even have to think about cooking and cleaning anymore. You can buy whatever you want. And also on top of that, nobody will ever know that you're wealthy. Nobody outside of just you will ever know that you're worth hundreds of millions of dollars, billions of dollars. Not a single person, not even the government will know that you're wealthy. Nobody else will know. So there's no relationships that get strained. There's no deaths, death threats. There's no anything negative that comes with winning the lottery doesn't happen. Okay, out of those two scenarios, answer this question. Which one of those two would you be the most content with? Which one of those two scenarios would you have the most contentment with? Would you be the most content with? And I want you to sit on that for a second. Because Philippians 4 is exactly about that kind of scenario. It is literally about this situation. So let's go ahead and start reading in verse 4. Verse 4, starting in 1, it says, Therefore, my brothers and sisters, you whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm in the Lord in this way, dear friends. I plead with you, Adia, and played with Sentike to be the same mind of the same Lord. Yes, and I ask you, my true companion, help these women, since they have contended at my side in the cause of the gospel, along with Clement and the rest of my co-workers, whose names are in the book of life. Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again, rejoice. That is my favorite verse as well. Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. Do not be anxious about anything. But in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your request to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds on Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent and praiseworthy, Think about such things. That's my second favorite verse in all of the Bible. Whatever you have learned or received or heard from me or seen in me, put it into practice, and the God of peace will be with you. I rejoiced greatly in the Lord that at last you renewed your concern for me. Indeed, you were concerned, but you had no opportunity to show it. I am not saying this because I am need, for I have learned to be content Whatever the circumstances, I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. I can do all this through Christ who gives me strength. Paul, in his infinite wisdom, is teaching the church in Philippi exactly what they need to know to be content in any situation. And so the Bible tells us really what it comes down to is the Bible tells us that contentment is, it's not a state. It's not a state of uh, account or circumstances. It's not uh, a state of what your surroundings are. Contentment is truly a state of your heart and where your priorities lie in this life. It is the greatest indicator of what your idols are in this life. 
If you think that money would help you to be more content, then idol is your money, money is your idol. If you think having a boyfriend or a girlfriend will help you be more content, then that has become an idol in your life. If you think getting the right job or getting good grades or graduating, or if your life was just different somehow, this how, it points and it's an indicator of what our idols are. Because Paul is writing this from jail, as we remember going back through Philippians. Paul's writing this in jail and he's saying that I'm content. Paul has also been beaten. He has been made fun of. He has been gossiped about. And let's go start looking a little more practically to our situation because how many of you guys have been in jail? You don't know what it's like to be in jail and to be content. I can tell you from my experience to be in jail, I wasn't content when I was in jail. I also wasn't a Christian. But going back to a little more practical, Paul had been gossiped about and he was content. There were even churches that were, had people who were lying about him in order to try to get the church to stop believing in his teachings. This is the early church. This is the foundations of Christianity. And people were infiltrating the churches and believing those lies, even though they knew Paul. They knew Paul wouldn't do a lot of this stuff. But yet there were still infighting, there were still people starting to turn away from Paul's teachings because of people who were coming in and lying about him. And yet Paul is still saying, I found contentment. He's not saying that, oh, if, if just these churches, if just the church in Philippi, if, if you just would just listen to me, man, I'd be so content. No, he's saying like, I found contentment. And like I said, a lot of time we think if we had more money, we'd be more content. If we had a better car, we'd be more content. If we had whatever that what if is that you think will help satisfy your life, whether it's money, relationship, whatever that is, obtaining it would just magnify the discontent in your heart. Because if you're not satisfied, if you have no idea or if, or if you're not able to be content with where you are right now in life, getting $100 billion, you're content when just find something else. There's always going to be an idol that comes before Christ unless Christ is first in your life. And so whatever that idol is, whatever that thing is that is causing you to not be satisfied in this life, if you all of a sudden got it, do you really think that then at that point, Jesus would become number one in your life? Or would you just find something else to obsess in? Something else that you need to be happy? Something else that could help you to be content? And so, as I shared, we spent this week in uh, Des Moines at a light conference for Chi Alpha directors and staff. And uh, like I said, we, I literally wrote this sermon like two hours ago. But um, when we were driving home, my boss called me and we were talking a little bit about, um, you know, some of the hardships that Courtney and I have been through since we've been the directors here at Shiner State. It's been 10 years and uh, we can go through all of those hardships. But Brad, our boss, he knows every little thing that we've talked about or every, every we've talked about to him, every little thing that we've gone through. He knows all of the hardships that we've faced since we've been here and Brad said to me, and he said, uh, man, just looking back on what you guys have been through the last 10 years, if I went through that even right now, I don't think I'd be in ministry, let alone still be in Shadron. And I thought about it, and the only thing I could think of to say back to Brad was, honestly, if you took those 10 years away, you took all of the hardship away, all of it, wiped the slate completely clean. And I'm talking like mom and dad dying, those kinds of hardships. If you took all of those back, if you could take all of those back and just start fresh, no hardships, give us money, wealth, whatever, I don't care. You can even add to the prize a little bit and make it even that much more appealing. I wouldn't do it. I wouldn't, I wouldn't ask for my mom back. I wouldn't ask for those hardships to be erased because I know how close I am to God because of those hardships. I know my relationship with Christ has only benefited from the hard that has happened in my life because I've allowed it to drive me closer to Christ rather than push me far away from Him. 
in those hard moments when my mom passed away, it drove me to the throne of Christ. It drove me to his feet. It drove me to worship more. It drove me to ask hard questions to God. It drove me to, to question things in order to wrestle through them so that once I came through it on the other side, I was that much closer to God. Would I like to have my mom back? Of course, my mom was amazing. But if I did get my mom back, the first thing she would probably do on earth is slap me for dragging her away from heaven back to earth. And so I wouldn't want my mom back. I would rather she get to stay in heaven. I would rather she get to experience glory. I'd rather she get to be face-to-face with her creation than have her back here to benefit me. When in reality, her death actually drove me closer to Christ in the first place. It is because of those hardships that I've learned how to be more content. And I say more content because even as a pastor, I can tell you that I'm not perfectly content in this life. There's still things that I I think about. There's still those idols in my life. Yeah, money is one of those idols where a lot of times I just think, man, if we could just get somebody to donate $100,000, man, so much would be easier. If, If I could just, there's those things that they're little things. And those hardships have helped me to become so much more content with the life that I have. It's helped me to look at the good that I have in my life. It's been uh, those hardships in which Courtney was laying on her deathbed that I can appreciate her health now. The fact that we can have Bennett. There's so much good in this life, and so I can learn to be content in my situation. It was through those hard times where I learned how amazing of a friend Jordan is. It was through those hard times where having the support of a good friend to lean on really caused me to grow through in my relationship with Jordan. I could tell Jordan would probably say the exact same thing, that it was through his hardships that we grew closer as friends. It wasn't because both of our lives were perfect and we came together as friends and now we're besties. It was through the hard and the crap of our life that really forged our relationship. And so I have Jordan as a friend because of the hardships in both of our lives. And it is through that and those experiences that I've learned that contentment is something that we learn. Contentment is something that we learn and we grow in over time. And how do I know this? Ask a one and a half year old to share something. Better yet, Go up to a toddler's toy that he hasn't played with for a week and pick it up and start playing with it. What's the very first thing that they do? They run over and grab it out of your hands because it's their toy. So that tells me that our base understanding, our base understanding of this life is selfish and not contentment. Because if our base was contentment, then Bennett, when I pick up his toys, when he hasn't played with them, I'm literally saying there's been toys where he hasn't played with them for a week. We pick them up to take them downstairs and boom, all of a sudden, that is his favorite toy. If that's his base, and I know how amazing my son is, and if that's his base, then that tells me that contentment doesn't exist in his life. So it's something that I have to teach him over time. It's something that God has to teach him over time. Or say as an adult. So picture this situation, okay? I know you guys can imagine this perfectly well because I feel like we've all had this experience. So you go to the store and you're debating on whether or not you want to grab the last donut. What's your favorite donut, Jack? I know you don't get to eat them, but I want you to dream right now. Pink sprinkled, okay. So you walk in and there's a pink sprinkled donut and there's just one left, okay? This thing is still fresh. You can tell it's still warm. You know, that just, those apple fritters are pretty good. So there's just the one donut. There's nothing else. No other variety. Nothing. It's literally bare and there's one donut. And you walk up to it and you think, do I want this donut? There's just one left. And as you think, no, I think I'm okay. Somebody kind of bumps you out of the way, reaches in, grabs the donut and takes a bite out of it. What is your very first thought? That's my donut. I was going to get that donut. All of a sudden, he's a jerk because he stole your donut. Even though you had literally just made the decision, I think I'm good, I don't need that donut. That is our first instinct when making a decision like that. When somebody else comes in and now has that thing, 
we immediately become jealous. We become jealous of the situation. It's a donut. Who cares? It's not only a donut, but it's a donut you just decided you didn't want. But for some reason, the circumstances caused you to all of a sudden regret that you said no and decided and you wavered for that split second to get it and decided no. Our default setting is selfishness. And it's those kinds of situations that help us to learn that our default setting is selfishness. Our default setting is entitlement. The life you have right now, exactly where you're at. We go through, if I, I shared with you guys and I asked you the question, your life exactly as it is, if you had this life for the rest of your life, exactly as it is, we kind of are grumbly about it. We kind of don't want that. We don't desire that. How many of you guys actually desire to be exactly in your life as it is now for the rest of your life? No, but what if I told you that when five years from now, you could have half of what you have right now? You have half of your friends. You have half of your free time. You have half of your health. You have half of your, a lot goes downhill once you graduate. And I'm not complaining about it, but I'm saying there's a lot that you miss out on later in life. There's a lot that becomes harder. There's a lot, now there's a lot of good that can happen, but it is that status quo. It is that place where you're at right now that you almost feel an entitlement to. Because if I said your life would exactly exist as it is for the rest of your life, you have zero desire for that. That shows me entitlement because you're not thinking about, man, the good things in your life. You're not thinking about the awesome things. You live within a mile of almost all of your best friends. You don't have to cook your meals. You have more free time than you will have the rest of your life. I promise you this. Your first thought isn't the good. It's the bad about your situations. And as you get older, it's the same thing. You think the bad things and there's an entitlement that comes with our life. And so Paul uses the word, the phrasing, I have learned when we're looking at... Uh, what verse is that? I didn't re-quote it. In verse 11, he says, I have learned. And so this could also be translated as, I have attained or I have discovered. It was used to describe in its original language, almost like um, some translations actually have it translated this way of, of I have discovered this hidden truth. I've discovered this thing that was hidden, this secret I've discovered this secret truth that I've learned and I've learned to be content with it. It's basically what he's saying. It's almost like a tongue-in-cheek phrase. He's saying, I've discovered this long-lost hidden secret and I'm going to share with you what that secret is of how to be content. And that secret is Jesus. That's it. It's as simple as that. That secret that he's talking about, that long lost hidden truth is Jesus Christ. So when we fast forward to verse 13, he's saying that I can do, or a better translation would be that I can endure all things who, through Christ who gives me strength. Now this scripture is probably the most misquoted scripture in all of the Bible. A lot of people view it and they view it as though it means that I can become president because of Christ and Christ gives me strength. I can, I can make a billion dollars through Christ who gives me strength. I can become a professional athlete. That's uh, athletes use it for that a lot. I can become a professional athlete through Christ who gives me strength. But really, I think the translation of it is more powerful than that. It is saying that no matter what happens in my life, no matter what comes at me, no matter what negative or positive circumstances that befall me, I can endure with contentment through Christ who gives me strength. I can be content in my circumstances, whether I'm the wealthiest per person on earth or the poorest person on earth, through Jesus who gives me strength to endure it. That's powerful to me. That's more powerful than using Christ to justify my own idols in my life. It's saying that no matter what your circumstances are, Jesus can give you peace. 
Jesus can help you be okay with what your circumstances are. Jesus can, can cause you to be truly content with what you have. And because of Jesus, that contentment cannot be taken away. That contentment can't be taken away through jail, through being executed. That contentment can't be taken away through being falsely accused. That contentment can't be taken away because people lie about you and try to destroy everything that you have sacrificed so far, so far in this life for. That contentment can't be taken away no matter how negative the circumstances come at you. It can't be taken away because it is through Jesus Christ who gives you strength. But when we put our foundation and we build our relationships in our, this life on things like money and attention and a significant other and our own kids or our parents, when we build our foundations on anything other than Jesus, those things can be taken away from me. Your parents can be taken away from you. My wife and son can be taken away from you, away from me. My money can be taken away from me. That car I just bought a month ago can be taken away from me. All of the things in this life can be taken away from me. And so if I've built my foundations on those things, if they are taken away from me, it will absolutely devastate me and my relationship with God. Because then our question becomes, why God? Rather than, God, can you help me? It becomes, why did you do this to me? Why did, you, why did you let me buy this car a month ago and then have it get stolen? Instead of, Jesus, you gave me the car in the first place. I thank you for it. I thank you for the month I got to drive it. And Lord, I believe in you for whatever else may come. Our circumstances don't change. Our attitude does. And that's what contentment is all about. Because this is exactly what David meant when he said, The Lord is my shepherd and I shall not want. I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. I want you guys to read that with me. I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. One more time. I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. Now, if we replace Christ in this, does it hold up? So let me ask you this. If I said, I can do all things through money, who gives me strength? It doesn't hold up. Money can't buy you love. Money can't buy you happiness. Can't buy you joy. Can't bring back a loved one who's lost. I can do all things through my degree that gives me strength. A degree can give you a lot of things. But there's so much that it doesn't add up with. Especially in today's job market. I can do all things through a boyfriend or girlfriend who gives me strength. You're putting something on their shoulders that doesn't deserve to be there. And Courtney's pretty amazing, but there's a lot of things that she can't do. So what is that thing? What's that one thing that you've been wishing for for the last year that you just have been telling yourself, like, if I can just get this one thing, then I'll be content in my circumstances. Replace it into this saying, if it is through this that gives me strength. Nothing adds up. Nothing else, no matter how amazing of a thing it is, it simply cannot add up. And so the strength of this part of the Scripture, the strength of, of this entire paragraph, as powerful as it is, because it is so powerful, learning how to be content in your life is one of the most powerful things you can do because you remove any sort of leverage anybody could ever have over you. If you can learn to be content in this life, nobody else in this life can have leverage over you and your happiness and your joy. But when you allow other things to take a hold of this, you give man power over your life that belongs to Christ. If money is your idol, then that means whoever can give you the money has leverage over you. If a spouse would bring you contentment, then that means that person has leverage over you and whether or not you can be content in this life. 
but the power of this, the power of this paragraph comes, or, or the result of the power of this paragraph brings us this paragraph. I almost wish you could switch the two around because you've got to learn to be content in Jesus Christ in order to be able to rejoice in the Lord and to not be anxious about any situation. It takes that contentment in Christ to bring us true joy. And so going back, it says, Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again, rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to all. The only way we can really truly be fully gentle is if we have contentment in Christ. Do not be anxious. Man, again, if we have contention in Christ, we won't be anxious. Because that grade isn't going to bring you joy. That job uh, isn't going to bring you joy. That class isn't going to bring you joy. That significant other isn't going to bring you joy. The things that make you anxious don't matter if we have true contentment. Do not be, uh, be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition and with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Present your requests to God and trust in His answer. Trust that He is good. Trust that He is in control. Remember that the hardships of this life will pass. Pass. That job that you're working so hard for, it won't exist in a hundred years. The money that you're working so hard for, it'll rot away. The new phone that you want, that you're working so hard for, you're working 10 extra hours a week for, in six months it's going to be outdated anyway. Eternity. That's what should drive everything we do. Eternity should drive our actions. It should drive our trust. It should drive our security. It should drive our anxiety. It should drive all of that. If we keep eternity in mind, everything starts to fall into place. Because eternity is waiting for us as Christians. And Jesus' love doesn't ever end. It doesn't ever run dry. It's fully there. And I think when we fully get content in this life, that's when we become so powerful for the gospel. We become powerhouses for Christ. Because now, in true contentment, other people's opinions of you don't matter. Fear of Rejection doesn't matter. Feeling awkward doesn't matter. Um, not knowing what to do doesn't matter. But these are the things that cripple us. When it comes to sharing the gospel with others, those are the things that absolutely cripple us. The desire for more in this life is the things that cripple us. And it's so crazy that, you know, hearing, getting to go to light conference and hear from the greats. I, I call them the, the powerhouses for Christ. They're the people that everybody that's a Christian looks up to and goes, man, I wish I could be more like that person. Man, Mama June... She's one of those people. She was sharing her testimony and her story. And and it was through the hardship of her life that she grew the closest to Christ. And then as a result of that hardship, she shared the gospel with more people than I could fathom sharing the gospel with. She led more people to Christ than I could dream of leading to Christ. But it wasn't through 
the positive. It wasn't through the wealth. It wasn't through everything going exactly the way they wanted it, the way she thought it would go. It was through the hardship that she was refined into being this powerhouse of a lady. Every missionary I've ever heard from that has changed countries by sharing the gospel with them has been refined in that same process, that same hardship. And so when we embody this, we look at hardship as discipline, the way Scripture commands us to. And it's not discipline in the way that, you know, hardship doesn't come in the, in the form of punishment because you're a horrible person. But if we view hardship as discipline in the sense of the way that um, Jack needs to be disciplined with his diet, the way that Jack is a wrestler needs to work out and get in shape so that he can wrestle and make weight, that same discipline, if we view our hardships in that same light as discipline to help us to grow in our relationship with Christ, then eventually you will get closer to Christ. You will get closer to God. And so in that case, if I realize that and I fully embody it and I, and I trust God, then no hardship, then, or then we should fear no hardship. I'm kind of going off notes here, I'm sorry. We should fear no hardship because we know that the end result of hardship is that I'm going to grow closer to Christ. But we should also, also not fear good and positive because the good and the positive still comes from Christ. And so in through thanksgiving, we can be thankful to what Christ has given us. And so that empowers us. And that's the coolest part about this scripture. And the, part, the coolest part about all of this is that it empowers us. It absolutely empowers us to no longer be weak, scared children. It empowers us to be content powerhouses for Christ. So let's pray. Lord, we thank you. I, actually, before we pray, the, the remainder of Philippians, uh, I encourage you to go read it. We're not going to cover it through a sermon just because um, it, it's good and it's positive and it's worth covering. But um, we might talk about it a little bit through kind of more of a small group type setting. But um, I want to encourage you to continue reading it. There is a lot of positive, awesome stuff there that kind of comes out of this. But now let's pray. Lord, we thank you for... Today, we thank you for this opportunity to talk about Philippians 4. I thank you. Lord, I just thank you. I thank you that no matter in this life, you truly are doing everything. You, you are truly working everything that happens in this life for both our good and your good. I know that the hardships aren't your desire for us, but Lord, I know that you use those to grow us closer than you, closer to you. And I, I trust in you that in those things that need to be taken care of, those requests that I've given that you've granted, that you were blessing me, but at the same time, those prayer requests that went unanswered, I know that ultimately I trust in you and I thank you for, for everything in my life, in all of our lives. And so, Lord, I pray that each and every single one of us in this room could be fully content in you, that we could grow closer to you in contention, Lord, that we could be at peace in our surroundings. Lord, that in, instead of trying to get good grades for our benefit, that we would get good grades unto you, that what would drive us would be to serve you rather than to serve ourselves. What would drive us would be to, to, to bring you glory and to shine your name and to bring light into the darkness rather than our goals and our agenda and our desires. Lord, I pray that every decision we make would help us to become more of an embodiment of what you have called us to be. And I pray that throughout this week that you would speak to us clearly and Lord, that your spirit would come down and that you would flood us with your presence, that we could tangibly feel you are here so that it becomes easier to make those decisions that we need to make. 
What's the number one thing in my life that's causing me to not be content? What is the one thing in my life that I'm idolizing? What is the one thing in my life that I'm fearing? Oftentimes, the first thing that comes to your mind is what the Holy Spirit is speaking to you. I'm not saying every time, but most times, I I truly believe that the first thing that comes to our mind when we pray those things are what the Holy Spirit is talking to us. And so tonight before we leave, I'm going to put on some worship music. I wasn't planning on doing this, but um, I'm going to put on some worship music. And I just want to give you guys a chance to, um, to, to pray and to hand over that one thing. Whatever that was that came to your mind, whatever that one thing is that's robbing you of your peace. I want you to have a chance to, to approach Christ and to give it over. And what that looks like, it's simple. If you've never really given things over to Christ, you, know, you just kind of pray, Lord, um, we'll say, I'll just use money as an example because it's an easy example. You just basically say, Lord, I, I know that I've been idolizing money and I know I've been allow- allowing my current circumstances to, um, to give me fear, anxiety, whatever it is. Lord, I, I want to lay it at your feet. I want to rest it on, upon your shoulders. I pray that you would take it, the burden off my shoulders and to help me to walk in more purity of you. Help me to give this thing up. Help me to walk away from it. Something along those lines. Make it your own. And just believe that the Holy Spirit and, and that Christ will remove those things off your shoulders. It doesn't need to be complicated. We're not going to make this dra- long dragged out thing. But I do want to give you guys the opportunity to spend a few minutes in prayer over these things. I believe that we can hear from God. I believe that we can hear the voice of the Holy Spirit. And um, kind of explain it briefly for in my understanding and how I experience it as well, I know everybody experiences it a little different, but how I experience God talking to me is not uh, a clear as day sentence. It's more like an, a, an impression of a sentence. So like, if you think like a memory foam mattress, if you put your hand on the memory foam mattress and then pull your hand away, there's the impression of your hand. It's very clear that it was a hand, but it's not perfectly a hand. So it's not like Jack whispering in my ear, this, but it's kind of almost the impression as though someone is speaking to you. And so I'm trying to just be obedient to something I feel like the Holy Spirit is telling me right now. And and so everybody close your eyes and bow your heads again. Um, I just feel like uh, I, I don't know if this is for one specific person or multiple people, but I feel like there's someone in here who is You've counted yourself out for a lot of things in life. Um, But the main thing that you've counted yourself out is in sharing the gospel, in being used by God. You almost feel like that... You almost feel like you're not capable of being used by God for good things. You you almost feel like you're not capable of of hearing from God. You feel like you're not capable of of, uh, a lot of things when it comes to your relationship with Christ. And and I feel like what the Holy Spirit is saying to you is that... (laughs) if it was fully based on our abilities as humans, then there's not a soul on this earth that could be used by God. There's not a soul on this earth that could hear the voice of God. There's not a soul on this earth that could truly embody Christ. But it is because of Jesus Christ 
you have been made clean. And He works through your weaknesses. He works through your downfalls. He works through your mistakes. And where you are less, He is more. And so in those exact areas that you've counted yourself out in, those are the areas in which Christ works the best in. Because it can't be you. Because it is Him. And He's saying that He loves you too much to let you continue to abuse yourself that way. And He just wants you to walk in the freedom of what His dying on the cross gave you. You've already received it. He just wants you to walk in it. And I, and I think for, for your sake, uh, your guys' sake, wh- whoever this is, I, I don't need to know. Nobody else in this room needs to know if it was you. I think this is a very personal thing. Um, but I do want to say a prayer and I want you to embody this prayer. So for the sake of the identity of whoever is receiving this word, um, I want us all to pray this prayer. So if everybody would pray this with me, just repeat after me, uh, Jesus. So everybody repeat Jesus. There we go. Thank you. You guys are bad at this. So I say something and you repeat it after me. And the person this applies to really makes this their prayer. Jesus, thank you. Thank you for dying on the cross. Thank you for forgiving me. And thank you for working through my weaknesses. I pray that you would forgive me. I thank you for forgiving me. And I ask for your help. Help me to see what you're doing. And help me to forgive myself. It's in your name we pray. Amen. You guys can open your eyes. Sorry, I wasn't planning on doing any of this stuff, but I really felt like the Holy Spirit was speaking to me on it. And so, um, if that was you, uh, awesome. Like I said, don't you don't need to. It's a pretty private thing. Um, but if you do want to share and you want some accountability, feel free to reach out to either me or my wife, and uh, we would love to talk to you further about it. But outside of that, um, that's all I have for tonight. And so, just want to let you guys know that. Um, Man, the walking in contention and the, the, the power of Philippians 4, a part of the reason I, I, I love it so much is because it really is the baseline to our faith in Christ. It really is that foundation. And I feel like if it's something that we can't fully embody as Christians, then we need to work on it and, and we need to to be at peace. And, and it comes into all facets of our life. I mean, even just driving over here, I was running late and I didn't know that the road over here was closed. And I pulled in to turn and it was closed. Immediately I was frustrated. I was like upset. I was like, what the crap is going on? I'm running late. Of course this happens. And then I felt like, and I literally just wrote a sermon about being content. And how small of a thing, really, how big of a deal was it that I was one minute later to talk about being content? You know, but for me, but in that moment, I, and the Holy Spirit immediately convicted me on it because I'm literally preaching on it. But, but the better we embody this, the less stress we have on our lives. When we begin to get anxious about a test that we're getting ready to study for, and we, we get anxious about I don't know, Jack, making weight. When we get anxious about these things that they're important things, they're things that matter. 
But the, the trick to it all is just not letting it control your life. Because if you don't make weight, is it the end of your life? No. If you don't pass your class, is it the end of your life? No. These things, they don't have power to control eternity. The only things that really have power to control eternity are Christ and what we do and how we treat each other and how we love each other. And so we have to get this down before we can even start looking at eternity. And so the more content we are, the easier it is to love those people around us. And really that's the next step. So we go through Philippians and this is kind of kind of set up for what we're going to study next. We study being content. We study recognizing it's not about us. We study how to love each other so that, or not how to love each other. We study how to position ourselves before Christ so that we can love others better. And so the next step in what we're going to study is kind of walking into how to love others better. And so um, outside of that, just thank you guys for coming tonight. Thank you guys for being faithful and giving up whatever you were going to do tonight to be here. And uh, we love you guys, and we thank you guys, and um, you guys are dismissed.